Welcome back, listeners, to the Chronicles of Black Men. This is Kawami checking in. What's going on? What's going on? Uh, today is Tuesday, October 2nd, 2018, and we're coming in with a new episode of Chronicles of Black Men. Um, if you guys haven't listened to the first episode, episode one, The Cosby Show, um, you'll hear my thoughts and opinions in regards to um, Dr. Bill Cosby and his recent incarcer- his recent sentencing and incarceration uh, for sexual assault back in 2004. Um, but if you listen to that, um, today we have a new topic, a new topic of discussion. One that's been very, it's very interesting, I think, to say the least. Um, it's a topic that is pretty close to me, um, in subject matter, in life and in experience. Um, I will not try to hold you long today, but I still, I I really want to hear from you guys, uh, in regards to the last episode. And if you have, ideas for future episodes please don't hesitate to make comments on my facebook post when i post this link um also you can send voice messages you can do it that way and if you are interested in being a guest uh we can discuss that too um but today's topic today's episode uh no church in a while why black men no longer go to church why most black men no longer go to church um this as I said before, this is a very interesting subject because I myself personally fell into that category, or fall into that category. Um, I wish I could take credit for the subject matter and for the research behind all of the subject matter, but I can't. Um, this stems actually from a book that was written in 1994 by a gentleman named Jawanzan Kanjufu. Um, the name of his book is called Adam, Where Are You? Why Most Black Men No Longer Goes to Church. Um, if you never heard of him, he has a plethora of other books. Um, my favorite volume of books that he wrote was The Conspiracy to Destroy Young Black Boys. Well, so it's definitely a pickup. It's definitely you should pick up and read. But the Adam Where Are You Why Most Black Men Don't Go to Church tends to focus on and raise questions on why a greater percentage of black men tend to actually join the Muslim faith as opposed to Christian faith. You know, so I don't want to give too much away in regards to the book. I just think it's a great read and it's a pickup. And I think, you know, maybe perhaps one thing I might want to introduce is start um, talking about books uh, and, you know, good books to read. And if you have some books that you think that would be a good read for me, um, I'd be more than happy to, to do that and then get back on the air and then talk about those books. But today we're going to be talking about why most black men no longer go to church. <clears throat> Um, before I get started, I just want people to know that I'm not trying to bash the Christian faith. My mother was a Christian. Um, I have the highest, most up respect for the Christian faith and its followers, um, and the teachings. I myself am no longer a Christian. I grew up a Christian, but I converted to Islam very early in age. I took my Shahada and converted to Islam. So, and by no way am I bashing the church. As a matter of fact, um, Going back to the author, Jawanza Kanjufu, he actually is a Christian himself. So I think that's very poignant and I think it's very important because when we talk about this, I, it doesn't appear that he's coming from a place of trying to compare the religions as far as one being better than the other one. He's just It's just a factual trend based on percentages that majority of men no longer go to church and a great percentage of black men actually uh, prefer to join the Muslim faith, but I'm not really going to focus on the comparison of Christianity and Muslim. I just want to talk about a few topics 
on why black men no longer go to church. And then also I would like to add the fact that what I'm saying is not fully based on my personal views, beliefs. This is information that has been obtained and gathered from discussions with other black men, from polls, from questionnaires, all compiled. And these were some of the few um, things that, that was brought up that I think needs to be focused on. Okay, so I just wanted to put that foundation there so that you can kind of understand um, where this is coming from. A little bit background about myself when it comes to this subject matter. As I said before, I grew up in the church. I grew up in the housing projects of Pontiac, Michigan. At the top of the hill of our, from my community, was a church. It's still there. It's called New Bethel Missionary Baptist Church. And it was named, it was the, the, the pastor of the church at that time, his name was Dr. Reverend Amos G. Johnson. And the street is actually named after him. He's a pillar in the community. Love that man to death, rest his soul. He was probably the first spiritual man that I ever encountered um, who really shown and taught me and shown what a man of God is was supposed to be and how a man of God is supposed to act. So regardless of my faith, I still hold that man, man's in the highest regard. So going back to myself, you know, um, my mother was a traditional missionary Baptist member, straight old school, Southern, you know, and this was, the, this was our home church and we would go there religiously and she would go there so for some of everything, whether it was choir practice, whether it was Bible class, whether it was shade tree Bible class, whether it was... I was in the choir, so I had to go children's choir. We had, you know, I was always there. You know, that was, that was our thing, you know. And in the black community, you know, most of the time, if you saw males in the church, they were always there with their mother or with, an, or with their grandmother, you know. But as you notice, when, if you would notice in the church as they get older, it, it tends to be a cutoff. You know, you'll get up to the preteens and then you'll see very little teenagers and younger men, as, but then you get back to the older men. That was the, that's what I noticed. That was what the trend was there. Um, I myself, I felt <clears throat> living in the environment that I did and without having a father in the home, but I had plenty of role models in my life that something was missing there was something that I was yearning for but it was something that was missing and the church was not providing it and it's not saying that the church can't provide and what whatever I was missing that the church can't provide and perhaps maybe it was this church that wasn't able to provide perhaps what I was needing but that's where I was that's where I went that's my mother was a member of this church so that's where I went Um, my first, me being exposed, the first, my, me, me being, my, my first, first exposure to Islam came in through the church. And I think this, this is where I was getting at. This is why the story is important. 
um, I was actually visiting a neighbor church. I was visiting this church that was probably about two miles, not even two miles, eh, maybe maybe about a mile away from my home church. It was called Trinity Missionary Baptist Church on Bagley Street in Pontiac, Michigan. Um, so I was there because they were putting on a play. And the play was called The Meeting. And this play was about the meeting between Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, these gentlemen, these historical icons actually met in real life, but it was never recorded, it was never taped. So the meeting was based on speculation on what we believe these two gentlemen would have talked about during that meeting. So me growing up, um, I knew very much about Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, who didn't? If you In your average black home, you had three pictures on the wall. It was Jesus Christ, John F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr. When black history came around, they always talked about Martin Luther King, Mary McLeod Bethune, only because that's the school that I actually went to. I went to Bethune Elementary. Um, Rosa Parks and Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass by proxy of Abraham Lincoln. Um, so I kind of knew the whole philosophy of Dr. Martin Luther King. He was nonviolent, peaceful protest, turn the other cheek, love our brothers. They spit on you, pray for them. This, you know, so I kind of understood that. I knew that. That was the hero. That was the, at one point, I was, when I was real, real young, I actually thought he was president of the United States at one time. I had no idea. Um, so I knew, I knew who he was. So that character, the person playing him, it was familiar. But this Malcolm man, I wasn't familiar with this caricature. I wasn't familiar with this, who this person was. And so as I'm watching this play, I'm listening to them talk back and forth. And they were bumping heads in regard to their philosophy. But one thing that I noticed is they both wanted their people to be free and they both wanted to get their people in the same to the same place. They were just going about it in different directions. There was a conversation between the two where Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about the bus and, you know, the we're starting sitting at the back of the bus. And at one point we'll be able to get to the front of the bus and then one day we'll be able to drive the bus. Malcolm X was just like, screw all that. Why don't we just pool ourselves together and buy our own bus and drive our own people? So it was, you know, you could see the contrast in their philosophy, but they still wanted their people to be free. So as I'm listening to this, I'm looking at this man that's playing Malcolm. I'm just like, wow. Like, I've never, I've never seen this before. And even though I've never seen this before and heard these words before, what he was saying was resonating in me. So it began to fill that void of what I felt that was missing because I knew that something was missing. I just couldn't put a finger on it. I couldn't put a finger on it. So that was my first exposure to, I say, Islam. It was actually through the church. And then from that point after that play, I actually began to go do research about Malcolm X. And I ended up reading the autobiography of Malcolm X from Alex Haley. And then um, so I began to learn more. And then there was a few other scenarios and things that happened in my life. Um, actually, I'll even briefly talk about it. So again, living in the housing projects, it's the summer. Um, 
kids outside having fun. You know, I had male role models. There was people that I looked up to, um, even the street hustlers and the dope boys. Some of them was my family. You know, that's just the way it was. It is what it is. Um, back in the day, when they would sell drugs, I don't even know if they do it this way anymore. But back in the day, when I used to sell drugs, the, the boys would be posted on the corner. And if a custo or a customer rolls up, they would run to the they would run to the car. Whoever got to the car first actually got the sale. That's what they used to do. Okay, so nothing was different. You know, this is just how it went. That's just what happened. You know, um, so one day, I see some brothers coming into into the neighborhood. They suited. They had these bright colored suits and these bow ties. You know, and I already knew about Malcolm X, so I already know who they were. It is what it is. I knew who these cats were. But, you know, they had been there before. They would be selling their fruit and their bean pies, which is amazing. If you never had one, I digress. If you never had one, you need to go get one. Um, but they were selling their bean pies. And so they were in the neighborhood on feet. And there was this, I'm not going to say anybody's name, but they, you know, the dope boys was out selling their dope. And then a customer rolls up. And the dope boys start running. And then this Muslim man stood in, in between the drug dealer and the drug user. And was like, stop. No. So I'm thinking in my head, I already know these guys got guns. It's about to go down. This man's about to get killed. And they stop and they track and they look at this man. They're looking at him. At first, you know, I'm thinking this is about to go down. Let me just go ahead. I'm not trying to get hit by a straight bullet. No. So I'm about to move out the way. I'm still going to look, but I'm just going to be like behind a tree or something. Um, But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. They stopped. And when you look in their eyes, it wasn't a look of fear that the dope boys had for this man, for this Muslim man. It was more of a look of respect. But that whole scenario created an energy of power, created an energy of power, and it just kind of felt like that energy just came into me. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, the, the Avengers Infinity War when, when every time um, Thanos would put an Infinity Stone in his gauntlet and he would feel that power. That's kind of like how I would describe it. That's how I felt it. Um, so when I felt that, it was just like a power that I'd never seen before. So at that point, I began to do a lot much more research, a lot much more studying. And, you know, that's that I felt that that was the void that was, you know, missing for me. So at that time, I began to study more, study more of my history, start reading more books by Naeem Akbar. Um, of course, Juwanza Kanjufu, uh, Dr. Uh, Sheik Antadia, Kwabina Ashanti, PhD, Psychotechnology of Brainwashing, Anthony Browder. You know, I'm starting reading it. I'm just reading it. And, you know, eventually I took my Shahada and converted to Islam and been good ever since. And, and, the, and here's the thing. Here's the kicker about that. Once I became a Muslim, I began to understand the Christian faith better than I was when I was a Christian. It gave me a bigger and a deeper appreciation for the Christian faith after I became a Muslim. So, all right. So moving on, after talking with these brothers, 
um, on the subject matter on why most black men no longer go to church. One of the first things and one of the main things that stood out from the conversation was that the brothers felt that church was too passive, too soft, and too emotional. Let me say that again. Too passive, too soft, too emotional. And when you think of those attributes, those are attributes that you would typically apply to a woman. This is not to say that a man cannot be passive. This cannot say that a man cannot be emotional um, or soft. I mean, we saw, man, we can be soft. Let's not get it twisted. You know, you can be 6'2", 280 pounds, and you can have a little kid, a little baby girl standing next to you, and if she has a play phone, she has you the phone, you're going to act like you somebody on that phone. <laughs> you know, but those attributes, when we apply those to real-life problems, don't seem to work for us as men. We, as men, are more hands-on, we're leaders, we're problem solvers. And when we're a problem, when we're trying to solve these problems, we don't feel that being soft, being passive, or being emotional will help us solve the problems that we are facing in life. Because we, in our mind, we are at war. We find ourselves at war with society, we find ourselves at war with the police, we find ourselves at war with our job, and, and God forbid, sometimes we find ourselves at war with our own woman, our own spouse. So when you when we talk about those attributes, it just doesn't work for us. Another subject, another thing is that with those attributes, they don't seem to provide solutions other than to pray. There's this acronym that they use use called push pray until something happens as 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 men who are solution oriented we're problem solvers we need to have the answers we need to fix things praying does not answer it i'm a praying man i believe in the power of prayer but when it comes to a financial crisis like rent gas water praying it's not going to answer that question. It's not going to help with that. It's more fantasy. And it seems as if we want to deal with more in reality. The here and now. How is this going to solve my problem now? So when dealing with financial crisis, the church just tells us to pray. And in my faith, it tells us to start a business. When it comes to social plight, the church seems to pray and to tell you to pray and to ask for forgiveness. When we want to fight and take control. When it comes to our marriage, we want to be the head of a household, but we feel it takes that money to be the head of the household. But there's, but we, we're forgetting to focus on the mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional support that it takes to be in a, in a relationship and in a marriage. So these are some of the, you know, some of the factors as to why as men we don't tend to be favorable and to favor going to church. 
Um, also, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, let's think about this for a minute. The church itself, the deity of practically almost every religion, from most religions, at least, at least uh, the monotheism, the mono, ugh, monotheism, monotheism, <laughs> uh, monotheistic church uh, religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, whatnot. The chief deity is a male. When you go to church, my synagogue, the leader of the church tends to be male. So if the God is a male, because we always refer to God as he or him, and, and, then, the, and then the pastor is a male, wouldn't you think that it would be more males in the pews of the church? It would only make sense. But that doesn't seem to be so. And they're, you know, talking with the brothers, a lot of them felt that the pastors themselves are pimps. And one thing that the men don't want to do, men do not want to hand over his household over to the pastor who, who is, in, is an outsider. Because a lot of times you would find your mo- the mothers and the, the wives saying the pastor say we should do this. The pastor told us to do that. The pastor suggests we should do this. As a man, I don't want to hear about what another man has to say about my household. It has absolutely nothing to do with my household. He's already getting 10% of his income to go to him, but it's not showing us or garnering us any results. And men, for that, for that, with that being, with that being said, men tend to see sometimes pastors as pimps, and men don't like to be pimped. They see it as a hustle. They see in church as a hustle because you see in these church, you see in these these men of God walking around with these flashy clothes and these nice cars and this big old house and his flock and his followers are all living in squalor. We're all living in the projects. We all, we can barely get gas money, but every time we get paid, we give some of our money to this man. To do what? For what? How is that solving problems in my household? So I'm, pay, I'm giving you money and when I have a problem, you're telling me to pray about it. Well, if that's the case, why don't you pray to get money for your church to pay the building fund, to pay for all the things that you need in this church? Hell, if it's good for you, if it's good for me, it's good for you. Why do you need my money? You can do if prayer changes that and prayer is going to solve that. Then you as the leader of the church need to be praying to get some money and leave me and mine alone. This is the mindset. So why would we put ourselves in that position? We don't want to do that. The subject matter of the church. As I said before, going back really quick, when I talked about the chief deity of the church being a male, the leader of the church being a male, but yet the message of the church is geared towards women. It panders to the female congregation to keep the seats filled, to keep financial monies coming through perfect example if you ever go to church on mother's day and father's day you'll notice a vast difference in the in the in the messages being brought on mother's day the mother could not be praised more they'll talk about how strong she is how much of the backbone of the family she is what she's done what she's been through and even if she's failed at least she's tried and who am i to argue with that i've watched my mother struggle I watched my mother do as much as she can for us. Greatly appreciate it. 
But on Father's Day, you'll notice the story changes. The story then becomes what we as men should be doing, where we're lacking. We need to do better. That's that that message pushes us as men away, but it resonates and it confirms what some women already believe. So who would go somewhere where who would go somewhere where they're totally being criticized for the vast majority of the time? The women will continue to come because it's reaffirming what they already feel and what they already believe. And so you have to pander to that demographic to keep them coming because if they keep coming, they'll continue to provide offering and tithing to keep the church going. Now, don't get me wrong. When it comes to the whole wide scope, you know, um, if we were to break this down and by race, um, black women tend to be the most religious, the most faithful to the church. And then black men after that. Black men, although not as religious as black women, are more religious than white men and white women, Hispanic men and Hispanic women, Asian men and Asian women. And I think part of that is because of our experience of, as blacks here in America. Our experience here is unique than all of the other ones. Yes, everyone's faced discrimination. Everyone's faced racism. Everyone's um, face sexism in, in some sort of fashion. Everyone's face some form of discrimination. But our experience here in America differs than those, than our, 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 our brown and yellow brothers and sisters. Um, even our red brothers and sisters. When we were brought as slaves here, everything was practically stripped away from us and the only thing that was given to us was religion. Now, when we came over here, we weren't actually Christians. The vast majority of the slaves that were brought to America were Muslims, the vast majority. But everything was stripped away. Name, language, identity, background, culture. All of that was stripped away, but then they gave us religion. And even though they gave us religion, it was the only thing that we were able to grasp upon and to find relief, even if it was just for a short while. In a seven-day work week, in a seven-day week of slavery, you work Monday through Saturday, but on Sunday you rest. And some counties it was against the law to even work on a Sunday. Sometimes um, they would actually have to pay slaves to work on a Sunday. But many slaves would actually work on Sunday and they actually get paid by their slave masters and they would put that money up and save it and actually buy their freedom later down the road if the slave master wanted, would, would, would do it or they would buy their family's freedom. So church became that haven, that light as it is today. The church is the cornerstone of the black community. It was then and it is now. So we need to start focusing more on how to get black men back into the pews. Because I think once we can get them back into the pews, and I don't care, I don't care if whatever, believe in whatever you believe in, as long as it makes you a better person, then I'm all for it. But if you got men walking around who say they believe in Jesus and call themselves Christian, then we need to get them back into the pews 
and they need to hear the right messages that will have a direct correlation and a direct effect on them to make change in their own neighborhood. Not just tell them to pray. We have a lot of men walking around with PTSD who's never been to Iraq, who's never been to war, but they're seeing their best friends killed. They're seeing their family killed. They're going through depression, alcoholism, drug use, all of those things, and all we're telling them is to pray. That's not going to help. That's going to push them further away. It's not providing any tangible solutions. And once again, tangible solutions is what we're looking for. These are just some of my few thoughts, and these are just some thoughts and things that, and, and um, you know, things that came to me from brothers talking to them and offering surveys and stuff like that. But I want to hear from you. If I miss something, if I'm wrong, or if you feel, if you have an opposing view, I would love to hear it. You know, you can, again, you can, you know, if you listen to the podcast, um, you can drop a, you know, drop a comment. You can inbox me. You can send me a voice message through here to tell me what you think. Tell me, tell me what are, what are your thoughts about this subject matter and what we can do to make, make a change. Some of my closest friends in my circle, one's a, one's a minister, one's a pastor. I'm a Muslim. I just got married last month and the man who officiated my wedding is a Christian. He's a Christian pastor. And he asked me, he was like, is that going to be a problem for me? I'm like, no, brother. You are my brother. I would not have a problem with that. And that's my man, 100 grand. So, that's the end of today's episode. Again, if you have, you know, we've got got some more episodes coming up. Uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, We have... We're going to be talking about some other episode, you know, other subject matter. Another one in regards to the church. We're going to be talking about if the, if actually if the church are keeping black women single. I mean, this kind of correlates with this because, you know, you're not finding any eligible bachelors in your age range in the church because most black men don't go to church. So that'd be a good one to talk about. We're also be going to be talking about thug life, why black men race to be at the bottom of society, what makes that so honorable. Um, why do black, why do most black people, um, vote Democrat? You know, I'm not here to promote any type of political party or stuff like that, but these are some of the subject matters that we need to be talking about within our community. Uh, so it's been real. It's been fun until next time. I'll see you. Peace.